The title of this morning's talk is Seeing the World in Its Integrity. Sounds innocent enough, right? But in fact, seeing the world in its integrity seeing the world offered all of one piece runs against the the grain of our habits. Habitually, we tend to take the world to pieces before even looking at it. Most basically, as I was saying in the talks I offered the last two days, Each of us imagines herself as being, himself, herself, as being a separate, autonomous entity. But our proclivity to dislocate the world into fragments extends well beyond that. Today, I'll review that proclivity. And then... Second part, I'll consider what life would be like if we were willing to focus not on our separations, but on our intertwinement. So, let me start by considering the separations we create among humans besides the (coughs) I versus you separation, namely this separation that could be called us versus them. Consider, for instance, the partition based on gender. A sharp partition that allows for no no ambiguity, no trace of ambiguity between one sex and it's opposite. Opposite. Interesting. A partition that introduces a gratuitous dichotomy between the two sexes. A few months ago, Amy Goodman, the host of the TV show Democracy Now!, invited to her show a number of transgender women. They spoke most eloquently about the pressure that society exerts on them, demanding that they define themselves as either men or women. Period. No in-between category allowed within the gates of society. As Amy and her guests made very clear, as soon as a baby is born, if not before, we rush to assign it to either sexual category. The first question we ask when meeting a baby is, is it a boy or a girl? And then, depending upon the answer, we treat it differently. (coughs) 
as I said, the gender dichotomy allows for no ambiguity. Can't we stop falling for this partition? A similar proclivity to draw sharp dichotomies occurs in matters of race. This becomes particularly apparent when the race difference is based, is exposed actually, by the color of the skin. The first shadow of year-round darkness defines a person as black. You know, I, I, I may be wrong on this, but I haven't found a, a simple English world word to define the in-between category. The, the one that sometimes use is mulatto. First of all, mulatto is not an English word, it comes from Spanish. And in itself, somebody mulatto, you again assign them to a category of foreignness. Isn't it time that we stop using all these so, symptoms <laughs> to create divisions between races? And then there are the religious categories. Thank God they have less power now than they used to have. At least in this part of the world. But as they continue to have their divisive, do the divisive work elsewhere. As somebody in this room mentioned in the inquiry, This is nowadays happening in Myanmar, country that used to be called Burma, where gangs who claim to be followers of the Buddha are engaged in brutalities against a local religious minority. You know, followers of the Buddha is crazy, right? Yeah, you mentioned it. And, and yet, we must remember that uh, about a millennium ago, uh, armed forces, which claimed to be followers of Jesus, waged a cruel war against other religious persuasion during the so-called Crusades. Haven't we had enough of that? Apparently, we haven't. Now we have invented a new category, the category of terrorist. It allows to treat our political enemies as total aliens, as if they weren't human. To be killed by automatic pilots without even checking who is being killed just in case we can get the terrorist. Mm -hmm. 
And as you might have noticed, terrorism is not defined by the nature of the of the violence of the acts performed, but by whether the violent act is performed by us or them. The point of labeling somebody as terrorist is simply to implement the old strategy of divide and rule. Another category that contributes to drawing the line between us and them is a category of immigrants, particularly in the case of the U.S. if they come from the south of the border. Never mind that the bulk of so-called us originated from European immigrants just a few centuries coming here just a few centuries ago. Never mind that the south of the U.S. used to belong to Mexico and was appropriated by force. Never mind that today's Mexican immigrants con constitute the bulk of the labor force, bulk an, an essential bulk of the labor force in areas like agriculture and domestic service, domestic work. And yet, we still treat the immigrants as aliens, particularly if it seems to be in our advantage to do so. It's a shame. And so, in sum, whatever distinction that comes in handy to highlight the separation between us and others, be gender, race, religion, so-called terrorism, immigration status, or, or whatever. We use that. We use them. And in doing so, we alienate others, but also we alienate ourselves. Silly. Time to stop it. It's not only that we create divisions among humans, us versus them, the other humans, but we also inclined to draw lines of separation in relation to the whole world around us. Consider, consider the microbes, for instance, bacteria or and the like. Many of them are lodged in our body where they settled shortly after our birth. They occupy selected niches where they perform specific tasks that are also essential to our well-being. Thus, for instance, the so-called intestinal flora, the bacteria in our intestines, are necessary for the digestion of the food we eat. Much like immigrant workers, they are indispensable. And yet, 
we are largely oblivious of their contribution. As a result, whenever we can't catch an infection of other type of bacteria, say pathogenic bacteria, that brings us illness, we don't hesitate to fill our bodies with antibiotics to eliminate the pathogens, disregarding the fact that such a treatment is bound to exterminate much of our beneficial bacteria as well. Almost like with terrorists, you know. Isn't it time that we start considering our migrant bacteria as full citizens of our body? Well, you know, it's not just a, a fancy thing. It happened during the course of evolution some millions of years ago. And nobody knows exactly when. Some migrant bacteria became unquestionable citizens of our bodies to the extent that today it would be impossible for most plants and animals, including ourselves, to live without them. I'm talking about what's called mitochondria, which are now organelles were formerly bacteria, but now they have become organelles which get transmitted through the cytoplasm of the egg from generation to generation. And which play an absolutely essential role in our metabolism. So much about bacteria. But this fallacy of drawing lines between humans and bacteria and, and, and others are not limited to bacteria. It also applies to drawing a line between humans and other animals. Let me explain. Again, sorry, I, I've become a biology professor a little bit again. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should stop that, but <laughs> sometimes it comes in handy. When I was a biology professor, I used to, to call attention, the attention of my students to the fact that in the course of fetal development, the development of the fetus in the womb, we journey through our evolutionary history. This teaching is encapsulated in the statement that, and I quote, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. That's what I used to teach in technical terms. Meaning that the various stages of our evolutionary his history get reenacted, recapitulated during our development in the womb. A dramatic illustration of that is the fact that the human fetus goes through a stage in which gill slits, gill slits, similar to the gills of fishes, appear in its neck area. Holes here, gaps. 
Then, in the course of fetal development, these slits get sealed up, much as they did in the course of evolution. Now, occasionally, the slits are slow in sealing, and then a baby is born with fissures in its neck, which have to be surgically, surgically stitched. It's not a big deal. In fact, one of our granddaughters was born like that. And her fissures had to be stitched at birth, and she's recovered perfectly. There's no, no trace of that. Just like we have recovered perfectly from the slits that we have, only they sealed by themselves. But I find this lesson very powerful. It tells me that, for instance, this body of mine, some 88 years ago, during a period of a few months, reenacted, at least in part, the history of the whole of animal evolution. In other words, evolution is not a theoretical concept, just for me and for us, of course, here, but it's part of our personal direct experience, even if we've now totally forgotten it, like dreams that we forget. I also find this fetal journey, this embryonic journey, very remarkable because it bears a parallel to the Buddha's recollection of his past lives. Of course, they sound completely different, but that's only because the two journeys are described in terms of different cultures. Our embryonic journey through evolution is rendered in terms of our science-based culture. On the other hand, our past life's journey is rendered in terms of the religious culture prevailing particularly in India, in the times of the Buddha. Same difference. Both, both narratives highlight the same thing, namely our embeddedness in nature. In sum, whatever narrative we use to get unhooked from our isolationist proclivities, it's important to open the doors to the experience of embeddedness in the world, of our commonality with all beings. In other words, we join the world. 
we become aware that each one of us can be an avenue for the expression of the totality of things. Not that joining the world is an easy thing to do, as I was mentioning before. It runs counter our lifelong training to draw a line between me and not me, us and not us. And as a result of that, it requires serious effort. An effort that we need to do for real, not by joining yet another separate group with its own ideology based on yet another separate system of belief to which, on which to base yet another new identity. Oh, just open the doors. Just do so for real. You create opportunities for the walls to surround us to come tumbling down. Not just through reasoning, but by engaging our whole being in the process. At times the performance of some rituals may give us a push in that direction. The Buddha did that on the night of his enlightenment. He pointed his finger, as the scriptures say, at the earth. And then he touched it with his fingertips. That was a powerful message to himself. He was doing it to himself. Indigenous populations seem to understand this need to join the world much better than the so-called advanced societies. Thus, the natives of the Andean, Andean from the Andes, the mountains, the Andean regions of South America, are fond of drinking an alcoholic beverage called chicha. And when they are about to do so, they first toast to Mother Earth. They call it Pachamama. Same thing. And they do that by dropping the first drink, first drops anyway, not the whole glass, but part of the glass, to the ground. Of course, these are Indians and the ground is dirt. To this, so that's how they pay tribute to the earth. And it's powerful. I, I've been there. I can tell you, it's a powerful ceremony. 
on the whole then, our connection with the world can be helped by ritual, gesturing, just pointing the finger, but it needs to go beyond that. It needs to actually get us going to join the earth. And that's what meditation practice is about, you know. We start by learning to become fully engaged with our personal experience, say with the breath, or with the taste of food, and eventually open up to each and every experience that comes our way. No, I notice uh, little times uh, in the last couple of days that I've been walking around. I felt so much more connected with the earth because I had been connected with, directly connecting with experience. So I, I saw the leaf, the tree, the, the ground in front of me, and. And there was no separation because I was living it, not looking at it as an observer, but being it. And that way, in the course of practice, underlying each experience, we can get a whiff of something, I think, quite extraordinary. I call it deep joy, which is, of course, one of the manifestations of it. A joy that has nothing to do with judging the experience as being good, just what I wanted, and everything to do with allowing ourselves to be fully present with whatever comes our way. <coughs> a joy that becomes infectious like laughter or love and that can eventually color many if not all aspects of our lives <coughs> a joy that makes us available to resonate with all and everyone that comes our way both innerly and outwardly, and thus connects us. <coughs> let, me, let me offer an illustration of what I'm trying to say by sharing with you a dream I had a week ago. In my dream, I was making the rounds of a community of like-minded people I belonged to. <coughs> well, it could be this community, but maybe I was anticipating a retreat or whatever. It was, I don't know. At one point, I, was, I caught sight of a guy who was clearly an outsider. I saw him as a rich and powerful guy 
maybe a landlord or some sort of a, as they call them nowadays, a one percenter. <laughs> I, I just didn't like him, you know. I felt critical of his demeanor, how he talked, how he walked, you know. Later in the dream, we gathered at a local hall to discuss community matters. And the one percenter showed up too. Next, I found myself rising to speak. And to my great surprise, as I'm saying that, I feel some tears in my eyes. To my great surprise, I found myself addressing this one percenter guy inviting him to become part of her group and proclaiming my love and respect for him. No separation. No matter what prejudices I had, no matter how I had pictured him, no matter what he might have done, he might have been somebody abusive or whatever, or taking advantage financially of others. That's the picture of a one percenter. But I connected with him anyway, with his humanity anyway. I, I, I surely it wasn't deliberate, on the contrary. <laughs> I was trying not to do that. <laughs> So, in closing, how about inviting the whole world, the totality of things, one percenters and all, or whatever, to touch us in all their intimacy? Uh, a footnote here, of course, we need to evaluate the consequences of our actions and of the actions of others and to point out what's appropriate and not appropriate to do. It doesn't mean to subscribe to whatever this one percenter was supposed to be doing. But evaluation of the consequences of actions is one thing and judgment of the actors is another. In one case we evaluate, in another case we judge, in one case we focus on the actions, actual effects, actual cause and effect, and in the other we are creating an object of blame, to blame, somebody to blame. And so, in order to join the world, we need to drop the judgments of the other. 
of the actors. And we need to be ready to open our hearts fully. Let's do that. Let's join the world. Let's sit in silence for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.